Welcome to episode 9 of the Fit for Golf podcast. The goal of this podcast is to share insightful and entertaining conversations about golf, fitness, and health. This episode is with golf coach Andrew Rice. Andrew is an extremely highly regarded golf instructor with a huge following. His presentation skills and ability to bring clarity to the topics he discusses is truly world class. He is currently ranked number 25 in the Golf Digest Best Teachers in America list. We primarily discuss key concepts of high quality wedge play, but Andrew provides great information for a number of golf improvement elements. The topics covered are for golfers of all ability level. Before we start the podcast, I want to make sure you are all aware of the Fit for Golf app. It is the only golf fitness resource you will ever need and is currently being used by six PGA Tour players, two European Tour players and thousands of amateurs all over the world. Check it out on www.fitforgolf.blog and use the code PREMIUM50 to get a one-month trial for just $6. You will not find it in the App Store. You must go to the website. Now, to Andrew Rice. Andrew Rice, thank you very much for joining me. Mike, it's my pleasure. I'm glad we finally get to do this. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's great. So anybody listening who isn't familiar with Andrew, he is a very popular golf instructor. And I first got to know him or kind of know who he was via his very, very good YouTube channel. And then gradually pestered him with comments and questions over social media and ended up getting to know him pretty well. So you're currently in South Carolina, Andrew? You live South Carolina, yes. I live in South Carolina. I teach at uh, the Western Savannah Harbor down in Savannah, which is it's only about 30 minutes away. Perfect. An interesting tagline that you have as um, a coaching philosophy, Andrew, that I'd like you to dig into a little bit. What is essential to the golf swing and what is merely a matter of style is something I've seen you say and write quite a few times. Can you dig into that a little bit for us? Mike, what does the golf ball care about? The golf ball doesn't know who I am, how strong I am, how old I am, if I'm male or female, been playing a long time or just started. The golf ball purely responds to the travel itinerary delivered by the club head at impact. and. For so, so long, I know when I started getting into coaching, it was all about how it looked and it needed to look a certain way and it needed, everyone was striving to look like Adam Scott. And I think I know, certainly in progressive coaching circles, we have gone beyond that. We understand now that it's not so, so much about a look. You look at uh, a player like Matt Wolf at the top versus John Rahm at the top, very, very different, but I would say two-thirds of the way into their downswing, they're amazingly similar. And that's the kind of information that I'm referring to there. We don't necessarily, we shouldn't be chasing a particular look. We might be chasing a look for you and a look for me that's going to work for us. Matchups, what are our matchups? And certain looks will work better for certain people, the way they move, the way they swing the golf club. And that's really what I'm getting after. It doesn't have to look like Adam Scott in order to be able to function like Adam Scott does. Yeah, perfect. I think that's a, a really good point in that. And it's something I've seen in in your 
kind of online instruction a lot is that you rarely talk about rarely talk about setup takeaway backswing i would say compared to what you talk about transition downswing impact that's what makes the difference that's really what makes the difference mike and i think you know this information is good news for golfers it should be for the everyday golfer in that you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be Adam Scott. You can do so many of your things, but does it work on the way down? And if you can get it even better on the way down, your shots are going to be significantly better. You're going to have more fun. Yeah, and you might be able to do that without all the painstaking work of trying to change a takeaway, trying to take a trying to change a backswing position which may not actually do anything to downswing or impact. But if you make a direct change to downswinging impact, if you change impact, your ball flight's going to change. Spot on. That's what it's all about. That's what it needs to be about, in my opinion. Okay, perfect. We could obviously dig into a lot of things in this podcast, but for um, the sake of time, we decided that we would keep it primarily based on wedge play which is a special topic of yours where you've done a lot of research. You have an excellent DVD um, online covering approach wedges, uh, the, the wedge project. So how did wedge play become such a big focus of yours? And just for the sake of clarity here for the people listening, let's keep wedge play to maybe something like 50 to 100 or 120 yards just for this part we'll touch on closer to the green later but just so that it's not quite a a full shot but it's also not a chipper pitch shot around the green kind of like the, the short the, the short par 4 or the the chip out where you couldn't reach the green or the par 5 kind of third shot you know those sort of medium the yeah. medium shots that can cause uh, some problems Yes, yes. Uh, I first really got interested, Mike, in those type shots actually a little over 10 years ago when I first got access to TrackMan. And I had always wondered to myself, and we've all experienced this, when we get out there, sometimes you can hit that 50-yard wedge, you clip it beautifully, the ball seems to stick to the face, it comes out much, much lower than anticipated. Everybody who you're playing with is screaming, bite. And you're going, just hold on, watch this. And it takes two skips and really grabs and stops next to the hole. Why does that happen? And and that really was one of the first things that I wanted to understand. And on the next shot, you might make equally as good a contact and the ball seems to shoot up into the air, float around like a knuckleball and have very, very little control. And so I would say that's what piqued my interest. The first challenge, the first thing I wanted to understand better with the help of TrackMan was that low spinning wedge shot. And I I can honestly say in that five-year period from 2010 to 2015, I hit 10,000 50-yard shots with good balls, wet balls, dirty club, out of the rough, uh, I can honestly say that that is one of the least satisfying experiences you can have is to have to hit 50, 50 yard shots out of two inch thick Bermuda rough because that is terrible. That just feels horrible. And I started to get a good understanding as to what there's two types of interactions that we really need to address, Mike. I would say is one, how does the club interact with the ground through impact? And number two, how does the club interact with the ball, obviously, through impact? And I always say to friends of mine who are 
the putting gurus, you've got it so easy. You've got one club and the club only interacts with the ball. Whereas golf coaches, we got a whole bunch of clubs and the club needs to interact with the ball and the ground correctly. And so uh, I learned quite quickly that the average everyday golfer is typically going to do better when they don't hit down on the ball a lot. I want the club traveling down. I just don't want them digging their club into the turf. You can hit good shots that way. It just becomes more of a challenge to do repeatedly. I would like the club skimming along the ground. And how does that best occur? I notice that there seems to be lots of opening to the body. The lead shoulder is typically almost always elevating and the chest opening up. That enables the player to get the handle of their club, even though the club head is traveling down slightly through impact, the handle is traveling in and up through impact. The club head might be traveling out, baby draws, but the handle's in and up through impact. So based on that, what happens when you have your regular Sunday morning foursome playing golf, amateur golfers, player in the group duffs or skulls a shot from 70 yards and he's told you you lift it up you need to stay down that sounds a little counterintuitive or maybe opposite to what you were just talking about there what are some of the things that happen when someone's intention may be to stay down based well, on what you're saying about opening and and extension up well the the, the average male golfer and guys i'm going to pick on you a little bit here because the average male golfer is also part golf instructor. And what they know is this, slow down, keep your eye on the ball, don't lift up. And so whenever they hit a bad shot, it's one of those things. And I'm going to say this, I am yet to see a golfer, ah, I shouldn't perhaps shouldn't say that, maybe I've seen a handful of golfers in my day who actually are lifting up too much and that's why they're hitting bad shots. But I've got thousands who are hitting bad shots who are not lifting up. That is, there's a 98% possibility that you didn't hit a bad shot because you lifted up. Okay, and one of the one of the problems there being that the the intention to stay down yes. basically inhibits the rotation that you need to open yourself left of the ball and allow yourself get through the shot basically. Exactly. I would say if if, if someone said Andrew, what's the best wedge tip you could share with the golf world out there i would say keep that trail shoulder moving through impact for as a right hander i want to keep my right shoulder really continuously rotating through impact and that's going to give me the best opportunity to have a relatively shallow angle of attack to be able to get the sole of the club skimming along the ground the picture i like to paint for people mike is Almost imagine the club is a, you're landing that, the sole of that club on the runway. You're landing the plane underneath the golf ball. The face is hoisting the ball up into the air. And there's not a tremendous change in club head speed because that club's not sticking into the ground. It's merely gliding along the ground. You talked about some very interesting concepts in the, um, the online video product that you have about these types of wedge shots, which um, really opened my eyes, stuff I hadn't seen before, but I think are, are very important to know and most people don't know. And there were some of the concepts about how good players achieve a certain strike and trajectory 
based on the shaft lean they have at address, but but more so what happens the shaft lean at impact and how that changes the loft on the club. And mm. I think when you demonstrated that and, and had the numbers to to kind of illustrate it, that's not an intention that many players have, I don't think, unless they're unless they're very, very good. Like there's no way that the the average amateur has any concept that that's what good players mm. either either do or trying to do. Could you touch on maybe what a good wedge player looks like in their setup in terms of the shaft lean, how it how it looks at address for most players, but more importantly, what happens during the swing and how it changes its impact mm. compared compared to what maybe the the less skilled players do. And so I am going to put a little asterisk out there, Mike, in that. This topic, if applied to the wrong golfer, and so everybody listening in, you've got to be able to figure out, is this what you need or is this something you need to skip over? Because this is a little bit like fire. You can get burned. It can help you. It can warm you up, uh, but it can also burn you. So, so watch for getting too much shaft lean. But here we go. At address, ball position pretty much in the middle. We've got a subtle amount of shaft lean simply because the weight – of the golfer is favoring the front foot. And so I'm going to say 60-40 favoring the front foot at address. That bumps the hands a little forward. That gives us a little bit of shaft lean. I use a 58-degree wedge, and I'm looking for, and I'm nine times out of 10, will deliver around 45 degrees of dynamic loft. That means I've taken my 58-degree club and I've converted it, I've de-lofted it, to what is now the golf ball is experiencing a 45-degree club. I found that number to be pretty good for the everyday golfer hitting off of a pretty standard fairway, 45 degrees of dynamic loft. Uh, that is going to allow the player a good ability, as long as they've got good frictional control between the face and the golf ball, which is not always under our control, but some part of it is. Uh, if they've got a good clean golf ball, a good clean club face, and a nice strike, they should be able to launch that golf ball. With 45 degrees of dynamic loft hitting down slightly, they should be able to launch the ball at the same number that the best pitchers in the world launch it, and that's around 30 degrees. So the shaft is leaning more forward at impact than it is at address, but watch for doing too much of that because that's something that can also point you in the wrong direction. I think a question that might be popping up in listeners' minds to that is, what's the difference between you turning a 58-degree, um, say, sand wedge or lob wedge, into 45 degrees at impact versus using a 45-degree pitching wedge and, and making the same motion and delivering 45 degrees of dynamic loft for both those swings? What are, what are the differences going to be there? No difference. Okay. No difference because the golf ball doesn't know what the stamp on the bottom of the club is. It just says 45 degrees at this speed. Okay. So, so may, may, maybe a better way of phrasing that then, why may it be a better idea or easier to hit good shots by having the 58 degree turned into a 45 degree rather than trying to have a 45 degree with a, a vertical shaft or no de-lofting? How is that going to change things? That's a better question. Uh, simply because, uh, as with any strike with a ball sitting on the turf, sitting on the ground, 
We want our weight pressure forward at impact. We want our hands slightly forward at impact. Why? Simply because it promotes a clean strike. It gives the club face cleaner access to the back of the golf ball so we can get that crisp strike, nip the ball off the face, and now it's going to be able to launch that much lower. We can, if for quoting your example, if we take a, a pitching wedge or a nine iron and deliver 45 degrees of loft, we can strike that ball well and we can hit fabulous pitch shots that way. Tough to repeat. Okay. Tough to repeat. And so it's the repeatability. We all want to hit good shots and we want to hit more of them. Uh, that's the best way to do it is something, and we're talking stock pitch shots here. We're not talking anything higher or fancy. Just the stock pitch shot is almost always, I am yet to see a player on TV not lean their shaft more at impact than they were at address. Everybody leans their shaft on a stock pitch shot more at impact. And thus we get that 45 odd degrees of dynamic loft from their lob wedge sand wedge club. And we can hit some nice shots that way. Perfect. Moving a little bit closer to the green, um, we have our, our say, uh, mid-range wedge shot, our, our not quite pitcher chip, and it's also not a full swing, the in-between distances. I've seen you do a little bit of writing and video online about the dreaded Y word when people get closer to the green, the chipping or pitching yips. Can you give us um, a little bit of your experience in coaching players there? I know you do a lot of clinics on wedge play and you have a lot of everyday golfers who are coming with them. Basically, major major chipping and pitching issues where they're either digging into the ground far too much or they're, they're sculling the ball too much. Um, really, the, the big inconsistencies that, that make it very hard for players to play with, with any level of good scoring or enjoyment. Mm-hmm. Mike, it, it, it comes down to mechanics. It comes down to mechanics. If I can improve a player's mechanics and I get it there, there can oftentimes be with the players you're referring to this nervous system scar tissue, so to speak. But if I can throw enough ideas at them where they're going to almost be distracted with, with the difference in what they're doing. They're setting up so differently. They're holding the club so differently. Their concept is so different that they feel like they really, this isn't chipping. I've struggled with chipping, but what I'm doing right here doesn't feel like chipping. And that can smooth out the motion and take away the effect of that nervous system response to the perceived adverse outcome. And that's really, in my opinion, that's what yips are is, uh, is it's the nervous system. It's not. Uh, a mental thing. Uh, it's something that's rooted in poor mechanics and then slowly but surely morphs into this nervous system response to the adverse outcome. Okay. Is there, this is probably a little bit too um, reductionist, is there any drills or concepts or if you have someone who is really struggling uh, with making solid contact on those types of shots, is there any um, more common issues you would see than others in terms of setup or basic motion that people that tend to be common in people who have these issues? Nine times out of ten, low point is pre-ball. Low, the, the club's reaching the low point of its arc before it arrives at the golf ball. And so that's what I would work on. 
I would work on that. I'd put a put an alignment rod down on the ground. Have the players set up a nice skinny one so if you hit it, you're not going to hurt yourself. But put an alignment rod down on the ground with the sole of the club right on top of the alignment rod and make some little chipping motions brushing the ground forward in front of, not before, after the alignment rod, brushing the ground. And then I'd, I'd actually have them set up on the alignment rod and introduce a golf ball starting with something that's, maybe eight inches forward. Come on, hit that. And now the player is not going to be able to focus on staying down. They're not going to be able to stay back, as is so often the case. The upper body drifts away from the target in the downswing. They're going to be encouraged, forced to move forward. And now the low point's moving forward. And as soon as that happens, the strike starts to pick up and uh, things get easier. Life gets better. Yeah, so they're going to have to be basically having um, almost like a descending strike, even though it's on a very short shot that they may want to get up in the air. Correct, correct, correct. It's the loft that gets the ball up in the air. And for a long, long time, and I love to debunk this myth, people believe that if you hit down, it goes up. Uh, That is false. Because there is nothing when I'm exerting a force in a downward direction that causes the ball to go in an upward direction more. Uh, it's the loft that makes the ball go up. If I get the club under the golf ball, the ball will go up. If that were the case, I hit up on my driver. If that were actually the case, hit down to make it go up. If I hit up on my driver, my driver would go down, I would think. Uh, but I hit up on my driver and it goes more up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that's not the case. Yes, I do want a subtle downward hit. Uh, just the low point of that that arc needs to occur after the golf ball. You touched on um, friction and spin in in the episode a little bit earlier. There's going to be a couple of different levels of players listening to this. So there's going to be some players who are maybe mid or high handicap. And when they're, when they're thinking about these mid-range wedge shots we talked about, or even the short game shots, their primary concern is being able to repeat good, clean contact. Like they're thinking, they're thinking about let's get down in three from fifty to a hundred yards, which is actually great. Which which most people don't realize. Let's not take four. Yeah, the the average scratch golfer averages three point zero shots from ninety yards in the fairway. So if you're from fifty to a hundred yards and you can average three you're going to be in really good shape, which most people don't appreciate. We're also going to have maybe some players listening that are that are looking to get down towards shooting par or, or even under par, some good players. Hmm. What difference can the quality of golf ball you play make to these short game shots? What happens if you're using a premium ball that you might have to pay a little bit more for versus the, um, the cheaper ball that's a, a little bit a little bit different? Mike, here's the deal. Anyone who's listening to the show loves golf enough to the point where it's worth it to seek out a premium ball. And I will say this. There are so many good premium balls on the market today that are not 50 and 60 bucks a dozen. You can get a performance golf ball for 25 bucks a dozen. You can. Just got to do the research, seek it out. But a golf ball makes a significant amount of difference. Here's the deal. When we practice our wedges, we aspire to get a nice clean strike so that we can launch the ball relatively low, 30 degrees, and spin it relatively high. 
spin rate depends on the length of the shot. The longer the shot, the more clubhead speed, more clubhead speed, more spin. Why would we not, instead of spending $18 a dozen, why would we not spend $25 a dozen so that we can get a little bit of that without really having to go out and practice and work at it? Premium balls make a massive difference. Keep your club face clean. I don't think we need to replace wedges as often as a lot of the companies will encourage us to promote to, to replace wedges. That certainly is dependent on the amount of practice and wear and tear on your clubs. But I think as long as you've got a wedge that's uh, no more than two years old and you keep it clean and you play a premium ball, you're going to be in good shape. You're going to be in good shape to hit that lower launching, higher spinning shot. Why do we want lower launching, more control? Higher spinning, more control. That's ultimately what it's about. Okay, great. People are going to have to um, start doing a little bit of research then and find some higher quality golf balls. Um, quick tip to anyone, this is what I do for all my balls. There is some really good websites online that sell slightly used ones yeah. that are literally the same as using it for six holes or 12 holes, and you get them for a fraction of the price. You can buy them in bulk and then you have them for a season. That's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. Mike, I think we might have a podcast. Uh- a podcast sponsor here. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 there's not. That's just a, just a tip. Um, we have people who are, who are probably well into their off season in certain areas of the world now, definitely the, the European, UK and Ireland listeners and mm. some of the, the US and probably Canadian listeners. Talk Going back to wedge play again, these people are going to be lucky if they have a range with mats to hit from mm-hmm. or they're going to be hitting on a mat with a hitting net at home or some people are going to be reduced literally just to dry practice swings in uh, somewhere in their homes what are some maybe drills or things that people can do maybe using a mirror or no ball that they can do to firm up their contact or work on um, a good setup idea for these types of shots Mike here's what I would go with I like uh, for players to do block practice off of mats. That's fine. You don't have to bend down and clean that club face off quite as often. Uh, that's something that can work. And and I know this growing up, uh, I'm the same age as Ernie Els and the Goose. And I'll always remember when the Goose rocked up at a junior tournament and the bottom of his irons were black because they were covered in rubber. And the reason why they were black was because he lived on a farm and his dad would go out and mow a strip in the field and he would take his shag bag and he had this black mat that looked like a a, a tire, like a car tire. It was made out of that. Okay. And he would hit shots down the strip that his dad had mowed in the field. uh, And his irons would get this black rubber coated on the bottom. And whenever you saw that you were in trouble because the goose had really been practicing (laughs) and you know, I, I often use that picture, especially in today's modern game world here in America. We're blessed with so many amazing practice facilities. And I think to myself, here's this guy who made a tremendous career from hitting balls of a black rubber mat in a field down a strip. Uh, we don't need the best place to practice. We can get it done anywhere. Put your mind to it. Here's what I'm going to look for. Pitch shots. This longer 50 to 90 to 100 yard pitch shot. Ball position in the middle. Feet, if you take a club head width from toe to heel, two club head widths apart. 
Weight 60-40. I'd like that lead foot flared a little bit and the stance ever so slightly open. The nose. I would like the player's nose to be over or slightly in front of the golf ball. I don't want them tipping behind it. And then from there, as they go back, I want the lead shoulder to go down. That lead shoulder is going to go down. I think what the player would see, if they're looking in front of a mirror, and I would encourage everybody, whether you have the ability to hit off of turf outside or you're simply limited to making dry swings inside, get yourself in front of a mirror and get a sense for what you're really doing. We all have a pretty good idea as to what it should look like. We often don't have an idea as to what that look should feel like. And a mirror can help us connect those two. So I'd like lead shoulder going down as we as you start back. That in turn is going to actually cause your the player's nose, the player's center, the top of their head to move slightly towards the target. And on the way through, on the way down, I want them to feel like they're really going to get a, quite a lot of pressure into that lead foot. It's not that far apart, but feel some pressure into that lead foot. And as you're coming through, I want you to extend up as you push into the ground, that's going to allow you to start to get around. That's going to allow you to start to open up. And I think that vertical pressure into the ground on the way through is something that can help everybody. From down the line, that's a face-on view in the mirror. From down the line, what I'd like to see is if you picture the butt end of the club, if you set up and you picture the butt end of the club as being uh, in on the, right above the target line, okay? The butt end of the club as you go back should never get, unless you're making pretty close to full swings, should hardly ever get, if you're hitting a 50-yarder, it's never going to get inside that target line. So it's never going to go closer. It's never going to get further away from the ball than where it started in a 2D sense. If everyone, I hope everyone gets that. Um, so the, tar, the butt end of the club as you go back is never going to go inside as long as you're not making full swings and i think if you can keep a check on those two things don't let your head drift back away from the target in the backswing that lead shoulder going down is actually going to keep it slightly forward you'll push into the ground and stand you'll actually get a little taller on the way through as you extend and watch that handle don't let that handle get tucked in to the inside too much that's going to make life difficult yeah probably pretty easy for people to set up some sort of um little barrier they can use uh, to stop sure. that club from from getting too yeah. far inside too, just putting like a chair behind you or something like uh -huh. that and keeping a little bit more outside. That's really good info. That's something I'm going to have to go back and listen to a couple of times. Maybe um, the listeners can can take some notes on that too, but I think that's a, a really good checklist to have for practicing at home. Something else that you've covered, this is moving on from wedge play and more into the general uh, general game, but you were the first person I think I ever saw to to write about this and almost provide a little bit of a formula for it. There's no such thing as a one, two, or three club wind, which we always hear when people are reporting on their on their golf. Oh, it was a three club wind, you know, two club wind. Can you tell us about the the research you did on this and what you found? Mike, I love this stuff. It's uh... It's good to have a general understanding and keep in mind that, that when we talk about wind, um, it is going to be general simply because 
uh, one second you can have a 12 mile an hour wind in your face and the next second that can be down to seven miles an hour and then back up to 14 and it's ever changing but we need to have some kind of an, an idea as to how to approach it. Um, my experience is this, uh, let's say we've got a shot of 150 yards, we're at sea level, the temperature is ah, 70 degrees, let's call it, and I've got what I deem to be 10 miles an hour of wind in my face. Now, my experience is with golfers, I bought myself a little anemometer, which has helped me determine pretty closely how much wind is blowing at a particular particular time. The strongest wind I've ever played in was actually at Port Rush. Uh, I was playing with a couple of guys up there. That was the high. I got, I got the anemometer up to 35, 36 on that day. Golf bags, with stand golf bags were being blown over. Uh, when it's blowing in the mid-30s, it's hard to stand. It's hard to stand up. And typically, golfers will overestimate wind. Okay, unless you're an airline pilot or you've trained <laughs> with an anemometer, you're typically going to overestimate wind. Um, but once you get a general idea, uh, I believe we should go five miles, 10 miles, 15 miles, 20 miles. If it's more than 20, you might want to stay home. Okay? <laughs> come, come back another day. But um, here's the, the basic formula that I use. If I've got a 150-yard shot into a 10-mile-an-hour headwind, I'm going to take 10% of the distance, which is 15 yards, add that. And when I'm into the wind, I always add, and I just for some reason found this to work relatively well, I'll always add a bonus five yards. And so I've got 15, that's the 10%, plus the bonus five, that's 20 yards. Uh, and so my 150 shot is going to play 170 into a 10-mile-an-hour wind, which really isn't that much really isn't that much. And so here we've got 20 yards added on. The inverse, downwind, that 150-yard shot with 10 miles an hour of help, I go one-third. And so now I'm going to take 3%. That's five yards. And I don't take off an extra five. And so this shot, 150-yard uh, shot downwind, exact same wind, is going to play 145. 150-yard shot into a 10-mile-an-hour wind is going to play in the ballpark of 170 yards. So yeah. it's not a one-club wind because if that were the case, it's add one that way, take one off that way, and it just doesn't doesn't ever seem to work that way. Yeah, and I imagine just like anecdotally thinking back over playing rounds in the wind if everybody does it, I'd be willing to bet we've had way more shots downwind that don't go as far past the hole as we were expecting as into the wind that come up 20 yards short of the green yeah. from, from not anticipating enough. The, the general rule, if everyone can just take this away, uh, golfers will typically underestimate the effect of a headwind and overestimate the effect of a tailwind. Yeah. Just accordingly. Perfect. Um, Andrew, we are nearly finished. There is one very important uh, thing that is left to cover. Who's going to win the Masters? Mike, th this is this is very secret, top secret information I've got here for you. You know, um, uh, I, have, I, I, have my, I have my betting app open, ready to go. <laughs> oh yeah, you're guaranteed <laughs> to lose with my pick. Mike. Guaranteed to lose. I would say this. Um, I believe uh, strongly in. Brooks Kepka. I think we are in uh, 
the Brooks Kepka era. I just don't think we realize it yet. Uh, he has a an extra level mindset. Uh, I think it's telling that he shot 65-65 over the weekend. And I would he's gonna go in there and be flying under the radar. He hasn't done much for a while, but uh, that would be my pick. It's gonna be it's gonna be really cool, really exciting. Hey, what what Masters isn't? It just I must say it does feel a little strange having it this weekend where it's getting colder here. We're only I'm only two hours away, and uh, it's gonna be a wet and warm week. It looks like uh, we've got Hurricane Eta coming up and and dumping a lot of moisture. Not too much in the way of wind, but um, the golf course is gonna be soft. That is going to favor players who carry the golf ball a long way. What about Bryson? Cool. Hey, it's going to be – I can't wait. I, I'm with everybody. I, I, I want to see it. I want to see it. It's – the guy is – here's the deal. I, I look at Bryson to me as he is the ultimate he, – he just wants an edge. He wants an edge. And he's 100% committed He's extremely intelligent. He believes in himself. He's a hard, hard worker. Nothing is too much for him to do to get to where he wants to get to. And when you have that, he's massively talented. When you have that combination, that's powerful. Uh, He's done what other people have been afraid to do. He's looked at the data to the degree that other people have not, and he's decided to make the change and i think it's cool it's it's got people like you and i talking i know it's done a lot for your business it's it's certainly even moved my business you know what bryson's whole approach is how can people get faster it's something i'm working on i'm sure i know you're working on it and uh it's a fun challenge it's a fun journey it really is fun to do yeah uh, something actually that just struck me. I meant to ask this question to an expert club fitter I had on a couple of weeks ago, but I know that you have some info on this too. A question that I've been asked a little bit. I've no experience in it. Longer shafts. So 45, in- well, I think 44 and a half inch is standard, is is the average on the PGA Tour. Maybe that's shifted I, a little bit. I think that's about right. I think that's about right. I, I know that like I'm, I'm five foot 10. Um, in my last fitting, I was about 114, 115 miles an hour um, on a cold morning in Arizona. I'd be maybe a couple of miles an hour quicker than that in, in California in the heat. But I was fitted for a 44.5-inch driver at Ping. We have players looking at 46, 47, 48. How much speed do you think is likely to be gained maybe per inch? And also, is it only bigger, stronger players are going to be able to maximize these longer shafts or is it a, is it a, it depends? Like this is something I looked at with the guys from Ping quite a few years ago. We did quite a neat tip. I need to look it up and dig it out. Um, I went to Ping HQ where you got your fitting, I believe. And, uh, We did, I did a 44, a 45, and a 46-inch driver, and I hit a number of shots with each, and we tabulated the data at the end, and it came out that 45 was the best combination for me. Simply that uh, I got the best quality strike coupled with the most club speed out of that. Now, the guys at Ping, you know them, I know them, they're fantastic. Uh, They have tested extensively 
on their quest to help golfers play their best. And it's 1.2 miles on average per inch. 1.2 miles on average per inch. That is, if everything's optimal, you add an inch to your driver and everything stays the same. On average, you can expect to hit the ball three yards longer. Uh, that is not, uh, in my estimation, that's not a worthwhile exchange. That's not a worthwhile exchange. I don't think. Now, there are certain players who just do well with longer clubs. Brooke Henderson uses on the LPGA Tour, and I know she's not 5'10", much like you and I. Um, she might, well, she hits it longer than me, perhaps, but maybe not you. Um, she uses a 48-inch driver. Really? She used the 48-inch driver because in all the testing they did, that was the best combination for her. She does uh, grip down a lot, does, but does. I didn't I know it was for she, yeah. yeah, she doesn't grip down three inches. Mm. She doesn't grip down three inches. Um, wow. She grips down quite a bit, but there's there, there's just so much out there. There's no one formula for everybody, and that's that's really, if you look at the underlying theme as to what we've been talking about, there's no one formula for everybody. Um, yes, we can go and practice more. We can um, get stronger. If we call that the formula, I don't think that's a real formula. That's just a, an approach to getting an element, better. yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I, I really – the guys at Ping have done literally thousands of these tests, and they tabulate all the data they collect. They, they, they're able to extract so much out of all their testing, and uh, it's 1.2 per inch. What that sounds to me like is that um, longer driver shafts aren't going to be the magic pill for amateur golfers, and it's probably going to go back to they need to work on their technique and they need to work on their body. Yes, yes. I, <laughs> I know this. They can gain a lot more than 1.2 from you. Yeah, and, and looking into technique too, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, lastly, and we, we will finish up then, tell um, – the listeners a little bit about your your little speed challenge that you're having and um and what things you've learned actually what i want you to tell me i just thought of this now yes um tell us about the challenge you're doing and then tell us what sasha mckenzie told you when you called him for uh for, for, <laughs> oh, for a tip to try and beat that. to try and beat your rivals so, so here's the way i look at it mike is that there's there are a lot of golfers out there and i'm sure people who are listening to your podcast are fully invested in that they're of the demographic that are prepared to work out to get faster okay i teach a lot of golfers who are like Look, just, just just give me 10 yards. You know, you just give me something I can do now to help me be potentially be 10 yards longer. I know they can gain more. I put them in touch with you. They gain more than that, and they're really happy. But what can golfers out there do today to start hitting it longer? And that's really what I, I spoke to Sasha about, and Sasha was kind enough to share some stuff with me. I've got this uh, long drive challenge. It's about a three-month deal. We... We set a benchmark measurement, and we're going to measure a, a month from each time. And uh, I think middle of February will be the, the 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 end deal where I'm going to be crowned the victor over these two guys <laughs> with your help, hopefully, Mike. Yeah. Um, but really, what I'm working on is I'm doing a little bit of extra stuff to get stronger. Uh, I'm somewhat limited with my hips, but I'm doing a little bit of extra stuff to get stronger. Uh, I think mobility is a big factor for me. I know for the everyday golfer, mobility is a big factor for them. 
But the factors are as follows. Number one, and this is a lot of what Sasha shared with me. Number one, my condensed version of, of what he shared uh, is intent. And you've spoken about this a lot. I read this from you quite a lot. Uh, intent. Go out and practice being intentionally faster. Push, 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 push. A lot of golfers go, well, when I swing that hard, I hit it poorly. Well, yeah, you do. You know, when I get in a race car and I try to drive it, you know, at the speeds that I need to drive it to be competitive, I crash. Uh, I haven't, but if I did, I would, that's what would happen. How do I learn to not crash? Well, I, I practice going at those kind of speeds more and more and more and more. So I think the most important thing any golfer can do is be intentional with it. Get comfortable going faster. Number two we need the hands, the handle to travel be displaced as much as possible because that allows the golfer more time to input more energy into the system. So it's a longer backswing. It's a longer backswing. There's people look at Tony, you know, people look at Tony Fina and they go, well, he's long. Well, did you see him when he had a full-size backswing? Okay, Tony Finau is a freak. He's got a six-foot-nine wingspan, and he was almost too long for professional golf when he came into it, and he really didn't have enough control. And now he didn't intentionally shorten his backswing. He intentionally tried to hit it straighter. Mm -hmm. And so now he can swing it to just past weight high, and his club head speed is 123 miles an hour, almost the same as Bryson with a half a backswing. Okay, um, so that let's not use Tony as an example. Longer backswing with the hands. Number three, longer backswing with the head. If you look at long drivers, it's by no accident that all of them point the shaft at the ground, but when they get to the top of their backswing. Uh, the longer that club head travels, the more time you've got to whiplash it through impact and get that moving. And then fourthly, uh, this doesn't work for everyone. I've seen it work for most golfers, however, is faster, faster back. Uh, I believe that long drivers are stressing the club. They're stressing the handle. They're inputting more into the ground in their backswing than regular golfers are putting into the ground in their downswing. And you can see that they go back fast. They really push on the ground to get things kick-started. Um, go back faster. Number one, intent. Practice with intent. Move the handle as far as you can. Get that club head going way beyond parallel if you can. And number four, go fast. Going back. Perfect. Andrew, that is great stuff. Thank you very much for your time. I uh, hope and I'm sure that the listeners will enjoy it. Where is the best place for people to find out more from you? Your website? Mike, my website, andrewricegolf.com, is a great place for people to learn more about me. I've got a bunch of articles on there. I've got all my school information, all my lesson information. You can track me down there on social media. I'm everything Andrew Rice Golf. I think I'm the same everywhere. Uh, yeah. Track me down there. Would love to have a banter and have you look yeah. at a couple of things. Yeah, I will share um, your social media tags when I post this episode. It should be up later today. And again, Andrew, thank you very much for your time, and we will talk soon. Thanks, Mike. Enjoy the Masters.